Well, good morning, church. And aren't you thankful for the Holy Spirit? I mean, wow, wow, wow. So thankful for the Lord's leadership that the Lord um, takes over. I just love that. I love it so much. And uh, let's pray that he continues to do that even now as we grab our Bibles together, if you will. Find your place in the book of Genesis chapter four. We've been looking at God's design in creation Um, God's design for marriage. And today we're going to talk about God's design for life together. God's design for life together. What we've seen so far is that God um, made everything that he made with perfection and purpose. Everything God has made is good, right, church? Including man and woman. His design for man and woman is good. He designed us to be a perfect match for each other. And so what we've seen is that the very first marriage with Adam and Eve was the pattern, is the pattern really for all marriage. And God's creative design is intended to be the template um, for everything to be be lived through. And so today what I want us to do is pick up the story again with Adam and Eve's children. Uh, They had two sons. Anybody know their names? Cain and Abel, right? And so as you find your place in Genesis chapter 4, um, pop quiz, what's the main event that happens with Cain and Abel? Murder. So, wow, yeah. Um, when uh, my wife was pregnant with twins, I suggested we name the boys Cain and Abel. And uh, she shot that one down real quick. Um, if your name is Cain or Abel, I'm sorry about that. Uh, no offense to you. All right, Cain and Abel, they came into a broken world, right? They came into a broken world and uh, a world where the design that God had formed had been fractured by sin. Adam and Eve's sin not only meant their own death, but it meant all of creation was broken and fractured by sin. So Cain and Abel, they they only knew a God who was distant. They only knew uh, a God where sacrifice was required. Where shame abounds and where strife is life. These two boys that constantly are competing for their parents' attention and affection and and constantly competing for God's acceptance. For them, there was no peace, only contention. And what I want to say about this is this is not God's good design. It's not the way we're intended to live life together. Um, When we get to Cain and Abel, we're not even one generation removed from the perfection of God's creation. We've not even not even got past Adam and Eve. We're not even one generation separated from the Garden of Eden. Sinless living, perfect fellowship with God, unashamed intimacy and love with one another. But sin has wrecked it all, right? Sin entered the picture and now we see between humans, brothers even, envy, hate, murder. This is the storyline with Cain and Abel. It certainly didn't take long for sin to have its damaging effects, right? Um, And so what we say is that this is not how God intends for us to do life together. So what I want to do today is to see the contrast of what's happening with Cain and Abel what Christ has done to bring resolution to that and God's call to us to live differently. Will you stand with me as we read? If you found your place in Genesis 4, 
I'm fighting with this mic again today. Genesis chapter 4. Let's just look at a little bit of this story and then we'll flip over to the New Testament and see a contrasting picture. Chapter 4, verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Would you flip with me over to first John in the New Testament close to the end of the book now? First John chapter three. And let's listen to what the New Testament says about Cain and about how we are to live in light of it. First John three, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, Jesus. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we too are broken people in a broken world. So often our lives resemble the brokenness of this world rather than reflecting the beauty of our creator. We thank you, Lord, for sending your son Jesus to show us what life was really intended to be. And as your people, as your church, we want to live out your good design. So help us, Lord, to trust Christ, to love one another as he has loved us and be the church that you've called us to be. For his glory, by his grace and for our good. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. So you can be seated. So as the story goes, Cain murders Abel. Cain murders Abel. Like murder. 
God comes asking about it. And Cain's response to God, you know, hey, well, where's your brother? Cain's response to God is, how should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? It's kind of snarky, isn't it? Yeah. I want you to think about the question that Cain asked for a moment. And what's kind of underneath it. Am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that question? Yes. Yes. Church, listen to me. Are you your brother's keeper? Yes. The New Testament gives a resounding yes. So as we talk today about the kind of community, the kind of fellowship that God is building and establishing with his church, what we need to see with Cain is that that's not it. Something better. So I want to walk through quickly um, just this text with some very simple truths that I hope ground us in God's design for us as a fellowship. The first truth is this. God's design was not Cain. Right? Really simple. When we look at Cain and the story with Cain and Abel, what we have to say is this is not how God intended for humans to live together. Adam and Eve in the garden, they lived at peace in true shalom. That's a Hebrew word. You want to see, learn some Hebrew? Say Shalom. Shalom, the word word shalom means peace, but it's deeper than that. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's not just um, a, a sense of serenity. The word shalom literally means all is as it was intended to be. Think about that. In Hebrew culture, they greet each other with the word shalom. It's, it's like a, a one word prayer. May all be for you as God intended it to be. They greet each other. Shalom. Shalom. May it be for you as God intended. What a, what a beautiful thing, right? Peace. Well, Adam and Eve enjoyed that kind of peace. But Cain and Abel, they never knew true shalom. Right? The, the only world they knew was messed up because of sin. But they weren't victims of their circumstance, you realize. Because the messed up world was in them, too. They came into a messed up world and they only made it worse. So the question we we need to see is what does life look like apart from the peace, the shalom of God? Well, we can just look at Cain. We just look at Cain's life through the lens that John gives us in 1 John 3 when he says, don't be like Cain. And then we have some descriptors of who he was. And what we see about Cain is that his deeds were evil, right? His deeds were evil. Verse 12, Cain's heart, attitude, and his actions did not please God. God didn't receive them. His deeds were evil. Evil. We're given that in contrast to his brother's deeds. What's the Bible say about Abel? His deeds, his actions were what? Righteous. So there's this contrast of evil and righteousness. Um, so f- for the atheist for just a moment. Here we see that our sense of morality, good and evil, is hinged to God. 
Like you don't even have morality apart from some understanding of a moral creator. What makes something evil? That God rejects it. That's the determinant of evil. What makes something righteous? That God receives it. Another determinant would be what makes something evil? Is it contrary to the character of the creator? Is it in conflict with who he is, his goodness? It's evil. Or what makes something good? Is it like God? Is it, does it reflect his goodness and his glory? It's good. Cain's deeds were evil. And when you look into the story, it's really hard to determine, you know, why, why was Cain's sacrifice accepted and, and Abel's rejected? Well, we don't always see every detail. We could nitpick it and find some things, I'm sure. But the, the one thing we have to know is that his heart attitude was evil. No matter what he did, the, the attitude and heart behind it was evil. That gets exposed by his ultimate actions of murder, right? Ultimately, God accepted Abel's deeds and rejected Cain's. His deeds were evil. The the next thing we see about Cain in particular is that he despised the righteous. Chapter 3, verse 13 warns that the world, too, will despise the righteous, right? People who are, um, the, the world hates the righteous. And for Cain in particular, The comparison between he and his brother, the sense of failure, so to speak, this idea that he doesn't add up. His brother adds up. His brother is righteous before God, but he's rejected. That sense of failure was more than he could handle. And so what did he respond? How did he react in that moment? Well, he he wanted what Abel had. He envied his brother. He wanted God's acceptance. Envy consumed his heart. And rather than celebrate his brother, admire him, learn from him, instead of all of that, he hated him. And he chose to eliminate the competition. If I can't be first place, I'll get rid of first place. John warns in 1 John 3 that we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us, just like Cain did Abel. And in that warning, what we see there is that the spirit of Cain, if you will, is alive and well today. You know that? The spirit of Cain. I don't use that expression often, but that's, that's the world we live in. It's this dog-eat-dog kind of world, isn't it? It's, uh, it's this fight for what you want. If you want it, take it. That kind of thing. That's our world. And here we see the third thing about Cain. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 sort of flesh this out. But his desire, Cain's desire was self-promotion. Or self-elevation, right? The reason he was so mad is because his brother was elevated above him. And he wanted to be, he wanted to be elevated above his brother. Cain, he was so self-absorbed that he felt his brother's success as his own failure. That sense of competition and envy was just embedded deep within him. His primary concern was himself. He was all about number one, right? We often think... Cain was just so evil, man. He was the first murderer. But what does 1 John 3 say to us? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Man, where did John get that teaching? How about from Jesus? 
If you hate your brother, you've murdered him in your heart, is what Jesus said. So we often look at Cain maybe and we judge him. We think, man, this guy's a he's an awful guy. Golly, he's the first murderer of all humankind. But the truth is, the Bible is teaching us is that he's the typical man of sin. He's not the exception. And the truth is, apart from Jesus, all of us are inescapably just like Cain. It's in us. Well, first, John pushes against our default setting in chapter three, and he says, don't be like Cain. Well, how in the world are you going to be able to reject your own nature? Because naturally, that's who you are. How do you push away from your own DNA as a human being? You need another human being to put his DNA in you. And this is where we come to the second truth. God's design is not Cain. God's design is Christ. God's design is Christ. So 1 John says, don't be like Cain. Instead, he says, love one another. 1 John 3, 11 and 12 He goes on in verses 16, by this we know love. What does it mean to love one another? Well, he says, Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Essentially, John is writing, he's looking back at Cain. He says, don't be like Cain. Instead, love one another like Christ. Christ is the ideal man. He's the God man. Jesus is not just any man. He was 100% man born, flesh and blood to woman. And yet he didn't have um, Joseph as a father. He ultimately didn't have Adam as a father. He's not in the lineage of humankind. He's the son of God. So he's a standout man. He's the ideal man. Christ is the great inversion of Cain. Think about it. Cain laid down his brother's life to elevate his own. What did Jesus do? Laid down his own life to elevate his brother's. Christ is the great inversion of Cain. And all of his teachings, all of his life, even in his death, as we see, he's teaching this upside down kind of kingdom, an upside down way of living in community. Now, up to this point, I've not really emphasized this much, but I want you to see that what Cain embraced was individualistic living, didn't he? He said, you know what? Life is better without you. I can do this better on my own. And he got rid of his brother. It could have been different. He 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 embraced this this like solo. I can do this better by myself kind of life. And Jesus taught something just the opposite. He taught us that we're actually so much better together, right? In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he teaches upside down thinking like all of it is upside down. He says that the the mourners are actually the, the happy ones. He says the poor in spirit, they're blessed. The meek, the merciful, peacemakers, even the persecuted are the ones who are blessed in the Lord. This is backwards. These are typically undesirable, insignificant positions. But Jesus is saying these will inherit the earth. These will see God. These will uh, will have the kingdom of heaven. 
This all seems so backwards, doesn't it? It only seems backwards because we have embraced a Cain-like way of life. It's not the way God intended life to be. And Jesus comes on the scene to right what was wronged in the garden. What was wronged in the garden, Jesus flips on its head at the cross. Jesus was all the time saying things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He's flipping things on its head, changing around our worldly thinking, especially for the religious elite who are on a path to self-advancement. He spoke into that world, too, where, you know, the guys who are trying to push themselves to the forefront, spiritually speaking, even. He said, when you when you pray, don't do it in front of people using big, fancy words. Instead, go into your closet, not to be seen by men, but to be heard by the father in secret. He said, when you fast, don't make your face look all miserable to draw attention to yourself. When you fast, do it for the Lord. When you give, don't do it so that everybody knows what you've given. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Instead, do it in secret for the Lord, right? This is, this is flipping the script. I mean, isn't it in our flesh to just put ourselves at the forefront and say, look at me, look at me, look at me. Jesus says, it's actually not about you. He has his finger on our Cain-like hearts. He says very hard things like, don't judge the faults of others. He says, stop staring at the speck in your brother's eye. Instead, acknowledge the log in your own. This is backwards. Don't worry about your life, your food, your clothing. He says, the world is anxious about these things. But you have a father who knows what you need. And he cares enough to give it to you. The greatest among you will be your servant, Jesus taught. The one who exalts himself will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. I don't know how much clearer it could be than that, right? You talk about upside down kingdom, that's it. You know, we often look to and choose the rich and influential, the powerful in culture. We think these are the men and women who ought to lead everything, right? Who did Jesus choose? But 12 low class misfits, right? Some rugged losers. He chose them. And with them and through them, he has built his kingdom. He's teaching us, even in the choosing of his own, how upside down he intends life to be. Finally, Jesus took the lowly path himself. In the Last Supper, the disciples are gathered together. The the men are arguing about which of them is the greatest, which one of them is the best disciple, right? I can just imagine Jesus sort of like... Here we go again. Thought we had uh, thought we'd gotten past this, boys, you know. And he just quietly gets up, goes off to the side, takes off his outer garment, puts on a towel, grabs a basin. The guys are still arguing about which of them is better. Didn't you hear me preach that sermon? You should have seen what I did. Didn't you see me heal so and so? Jesus is over there. And he 
just comes and goes around the room and one by one washes their feet. Everything is backwards with Christ. And ultimately, as we've alluded to already, Jesus chose to lay down his life. He never envied any man. Instead, he celebrated the successes of his disciples. He grieved with them through their failures and loss. Wept at funerals alongside them. Jesus did not hate, not even his worst enemies. Instead, he prayed for them. Even the very ones driving nails into his hands, the ones who had pulled the hair from his beard, spit in his face, mocked him, pushed crown of thorns into his head. From his own cross, he looks at the very enemies who've done their worst and prays, Father, forgive them. This is so backwards. It's no wonder he drew some crowds. Everything about him was upside down from our world. We live in Cain's world. But Jesus came to bring a new kingdom. Christ's kingdom. And in Christ's kingdom, sinners like us receive mercy from him. You know, the Bible's interesting in Genesis 4. It says that the blood of Abel cried out to God. Did you see that when we read that text? That his blood actually cried out to the Lord. What do you think was the cry of the blood of Abel to God? Murder had just happened. A great injustice had just happened. What is the cry from the blood of Abel to the judge of all creation? It's a cry for what? Justice. Justice comes from the blood of Abel. And God came and that's exactly what he did. He said to Abel, from now on, life's going to be hard for you. Justice is what came from the blood of Abel. But the spilt blood of Jesus is much different, isn't it? The blood of Jesus shed for you and for me doesn't cry out to God for justice because justice had been served at the cross. The blood of Jesus, Hebrews 12, verse 23 and 24, says he's the mediator of a new covenant. His blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hebrews 12, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If Abel's blood cried out for justice, what does Jesus' blood cry for? Mercy. Mercy for sinners. So through Jesus, he comes in bringing a new kingdom, flipping things on their head. And in Jesus, sinners receive mercy. (laughs) This is good news, isn't it, church? It's what Judson was talking about down here is that your sin cannot outweigh the mercy and grace of God. If you come to Christ, you will find mercy and forgiveness. This is what we've got to get a grip on. Look around this room. You see nothing but sinners here. Every one of us comes to Jesus in need of great mercy. And 1 Peter chapter 2 says that's actually what unites us together. 1 Peter 2, 10 and 11 says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's mercy that brings us together. And the reason this is important is because there's no room for self-elevation in a world filled with mercy recipients, right? right? There's no room for me to say, well, <laughs> I've received less mercy than you. That's ridiculous. There's no Cain self-promotion among God's people. It's supposed to be squashed in the kingdom of God. Like Cain, we deserve justice, but in Jesus, we receive deep, soul-cleansing mercy. I think about the woman at the well when Jesus met that woman at the well in John 4. You know, she had gone out there all by herself to avoid everyone because she was just swallowed up with the shame of her life, right? She went out there in the heat of the day because she knew nobody was going to be there, and yet Jesus was there, right? He had told his disciples, we, we've got to go through Samaria. And they were like, ah, we actually want to go around Samaria. No, I've got a meeting. He met with this woman at the well. She was there because she was thirsty. And Jesus told her, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water. Because if you drank the water that I have, you'll never thirst again. What's he talking about there? He's talking about himself, the mercy of Christ, the satisfying, soul satisfying of knowing that your shame is erased in the blood and mercy of Jesus. You can be made new in Christ. She went for water. She got so much more. But Jesus told her, if you drink of this water, it will become in you a spring of life welling up to new life. The truth is this. Listen. Cain pushes us toward individualism, right? Cain ultimately says life is better without you. In Christ, what we see from the moment we receive mercy is immediately he's pushing us into a new community. Toward one another. He's saying, I'm not just giving you this soul cleansing mercy water so that you're quenched. I want to make you the one who springs out this water to everyone else. And with the woman at the well, she became one of the best missionaries we've ever seen. Immediately. Come see a man who gave me great mercy. God's design is Christ. Listen, church, Christian, your life as a mercy recipient is meant for others. It's meant to live in a one another kind of a world. You're meant for community. God's design is for togetherness. It's life together. He's given you life so that you can be a giver of his life to others. And so here, thirdly, God's design is the church as family. The church as family. Back to the original question that Cain asked God. Am I my brother's keeper, right? This is his question. Snarky as it was, it was a good question. How should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? It's this relinquishing of responsibility. It's this laying laying down all ownership of the well-being of someone else. A rejection of that. A full embracing of complete and total individualism. All I have to worry about is me. Don't come asking me about him. It's just about me here. 
This is Cain. Well, in the community that Jesus is building called the church, the answer, as we affirmed a moment ago, to am I my brother's keeper, the answer is a resounding what? Yes. Yes. Life is intended for complete dependence on God and interdependence on one another. It's how God intended it to be. In the book of Acts, the scriptures that Pedro read to us, what we see is that the Holy Spirit came on his church. And one of the most shocking aspects of this new community was their radical, self-giving one anotherness. Christ followers in the first century, they weren't competing for the nicest house on the block. They were selling their houses and giving the proceeds as anybody had need. Do you see this is a rejection of individualistic Cain-like thinking and an embracing of this corporate, communal, one anotherness that Christ is building? They weren't jockeying for status or position. They were caring for widows and orphans. Okay, you ready to dig in where the rubber meets the road? 1 John 3 gets super intentional. So here it comes. The Bible calls us, church, to these three imperatives in this text. Here they are. First, love one another. Love one another. 1 John 3.11, love one another. In the New Testament, there's over a hundred one another expressions. About one third of them are about unity in the church. About one third of them are about loving one another. One of my favorites is where Paul says it in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. I love this expression. He says this, let love be genuine. Say that word. Genuine. Let's try it again. Let love be what? Genuine. As opposed to what? What would be an alternative to genuine? Fake or, or pretending or what? Yeah, absolutely. So let love be genuine. He goes on to say, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Evil. Good. There it is again, right? Verse 10. Love one another with what? Brotherly affection. Not like Cain, right? Brotherly affection. This is the kind of affection that brothers would have. Not the Cain and Abel kind of brothers. But God's designed for brothers. With brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I mean, these, he, he goes details through the rest of that chapter what it means to really love one another. I encourage you to dig into it. But just this is enough for us for now. Let love be genuine. Can I just tell you anything else is not love. If it's not genuine, it's not love, whatever you call it. It's not love. When Paul says, let love be genuine, here's what he says. You must be real to really be loved. You must be real to really be loved. 
Let love be genuine. This is kind of a passive aggressive way of saying it, isn't it? He doesn't just say love each other genuinely. He's actually applying the truth both to the sender and receiver of love, isn't he? Let love, speaking to both of you, be genuine. And so the requirement here is be real and really love. Well, in order for that to happen, in order for me to love you genuinely, I have to genuinely know who you are. I have to genuinely know your needs and your brokenness and how I have to, I have to know those things. And then I'm able to specifically apply the love of Christ to who you really are. So the requirement for love to be real or the requirement is that you must be real to really be loved. The truth is, if you constantly conceal your hurts and needs, the people you need cannot be the people you need. Let love be genuine. So be real, church. Right? I thank God we, we have a church of real people. Right? Just real people. Raw, real all, everything. This is who I am, right? This is the way we want to live. We are not pretty people. We're just regular people. May it always be that way. Apart from that, we have nothing. We don't come here to put on a show, right? We come here because we need each other. You bring the mercy that my brokenness needs. Do you know that? And unless you see and know the, 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 the deep wounds and hurts of my own life and the brokenness, the ugly that's here, you can't really love me. You can say hello, we can wave and be kind, but we don't really love each other. I don't want that kind of church, do you? So Paul says, let love be genuine, be real, let's love one another. I thank God you are a truly loving fellowship. I mean, across this room, if, if I just opened it, like open mic day, I think people would just pop up and say, I feel loved in this fellowship. I get to be myself and people love me. I, I praise God for that. I pray for more of that. May that be true of us. My exhortation, Paul's exhortation from this text is keep on loving in a genuine way. And all you who are new to this family, jump in and be real. Don't bring your fake crap in here, right? <laughs> Let me just speak it. Don't bring it. We don't want fake. We want real. Don't come in here pretending. You, you actually deprive the ability for us to love you well. Don't bring fake. Bring real. Bring raw. That's where the gospel can meet each other in beautiful ways. Amen? Okay. If you're new, we want you here, right? But roll up your sleeves, join us, let's start loving each other well. How do we do that? 1 John 3 gives us specifics. Verse 18, he says, love is not just words, it's action and love is truth, right? Love is action and love is truth. I hope you notice that love is a verb. Any husbands in the room ever had your wife tell you that? <laughs> just me, huh? Okay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, see, we're real, right? Um, now, you know, you can help me. You can help me out. Love is action. So we notice that love is a verb. It's loaded with deeds and action. James four. James is great at just taking big like cloud truth, 
cloud religion and bringing it down into life. And in James 4, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled. James says, without giving them the things they actually need for the body. What good is that? I love James's really practical question. He says, if all you do is speak into somebody's need, what, what are you? What are you doing? John is reiterating that truth by saying to us that love is action, not just words. Love is action. So words fall short. Love is action. Secondly, he says love is truth at the very end of that verse. Love is truth. Church, listen to me. We live in a difficult world for this, but we've been talking about it now for a couple of weeks. It is unloving to lie to a brother or to let a brother continue believing a lie without pointing him to the truth. Do you agree with what I just said? It is actually unloving to affirm a lie that someone believes. It's unloving. It's not loving. It's not kind. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers and he, the, the God of this world, is the father of lies, Jesus taught us. So he's blinding the minds of unbelievers with lies. What's the remedy? What's the fix for lie? Truth. Sometimes truth is hard to hear. Imagine being a, a, a doctor, if you will, a, a cancer doctor. What are they called? And you've had you have a 20 year old patient. You've done the exams on this 20 year old patient. You've looked at the scans and you see his lungs are just riddled with cancer. You go back in the room and you know you've got heavy truth. You've got really heavy, hard news to share. And you look across the the the, the table there at this 20 year old. And you say to him. You know, you, you really just have a bad cough. You could, uh, you could probably just take some cough drops and it'll be okay in a few weeks. Be all good. That might have been the easy path for you, right? Sometimes truth is hard to say and truth is hard to hear. But imagine that 20-year-old actually has a cancer that's very treatable. Like it, it could be remedied if he knew the truth. Telling them an easy lie is the most unloving thing you could actually do. It is life and death, isn't it? And spiritually speaking, it's even more so life and death to allow someone to believe a lie that has blinded them into deception is life or death. And we have the message of truth. So in the same way, people who are deceived or blinded by the enemy need to know the truth. And we love them with truth. We don't just judge. We don't judge or condemn. Why is that? Because we were just like them, right? This is the beauty of being a recipient of mercy. I was blind. Someone told me the truth. God opened my eyes. I've been healed or forgiven. There's no judgment in me saying to them, hey, guess what? You don't see the truth. You need Jesus. There's no judgment in that. That's love. John says, love one another with action and with truth. And then he says this in 1 John 3, 16. Lay down our lives for the brothers. 
This couldn't be any more of a contrast to Cain. But we are to love one another with brotherly affection. What is brotherly affection? Well, we almost abandoned it back through COVID with all of that, with COVID-19, when we, we propped up our safety and personal, personal well-being as the, the most important thing. And in doing that, we abandoned all the one anotherness that God has called us to. Hopefully we've learned from that. That Jesus is not calling us to save our own lives and sacrifice the one anotherness. He's calling us to just the opposite, isn't he? I'm not talking about your physical health necessarily. But he's calling you to be willing to lay down your own life for the well-being of others. For the one another community, you lay down your own life. Not just protect your own life, just the opposite. Lay it down for someone else. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus did just that. And John is saying to us, we should be like him, not like Cain, like Christ. Cain took the life of his brother. But we're to be like our Savior who gave his own life for his brothers. Self-sacrifice is what it means to follow Jesus. Remember what he said? If any of you wants to come after me, let him take up his what? Cross. Deny himself, then come and follow me. So to be a follower of Christ is self-sacrifice, if it's nothing else. Love makes sacrifices for one another. We're learning a lot about God's design for life together. So here we sum it up. Loving one another genuinely in the same way Jesus has loved us. This is our aim. This is God's design is that we would love each other with a genuine kind of love in the same way that Jesus has loved us. And there's really two ways in our fellowship to do this intentionally, intentionally. One is within life groups. We're just trying to foster a setting where you can grow into letting love be genuine. Where you get to know people. In a life group setting, there's couples, there's families, there's kids, men, women. Meet a couple of times a month. We laugh, we pray, we tell stories, we talk about Jesus. Very casual, but it's just life together. The goal there is essentially to build something where we can let love be genuine. And then the second format is in D groups, discipleship groups. This is much more intentional. It's a handful of men or a handful of women who set aside a time and place each week, an hour, hour and a half, two hours maybe. They, they talk about struggles in life. They dig into deeper things of the Scripture together, learning from one another. They confess sin to each other. They hold each other accountable, work together to share Christ with their friends they pray for one another, bear one another's burdens. You hear the one another, one another, one another? This is a place where we experience that kind of life in an, in, in an intentional way. You see, you can pop in on a Sunday morning gathering, sit in a seat in a group and still not participate in a one another community. Agree? Yeah. You can pop in and pop out and you missed it. What we want to do is establish something unique to the world. Something not like Cain, but like Christ. And so the call to us is to let love be genuine. To get real with each other in some kind of a smaller setting for the sake of the gospel.
I wonder if you'll commit to that. Well, I want us to finish today with uh, communion. And before we do, um, let's just see the beauty as our worship team comes. I want you just to see the beauty of the contrast between Cain and Christ as we transition our minds for a moment. In Genesis, listen church, in Genesis, Abel, the innocent worshiper, was murdered, right? His spilt blood cries out to God for justice. But at the cross, the truly innocent and righteous one was killed. His spilt blood cries out to God for mercy. Cain killed the innocent. Jesus was killed for the guilty. Cain was punished for his own sin. Jesus was punished for our sin. Cain was driven by pride, but Jesus came in humility. Cain hated his brother. Jesus was hated by his brothers as he loved them perfectly. Cain took another's life to advance his own. Jesus laid down his own life for others. Cain had no concern for anyone but himself. Am I my brother's keeper? Jesus gave himself to be the keeper of all of his brothers. Amen.